and then well thank you all okay you don't you can sit you don't have to stand <laughs> well I'm an addict I'm Bill all right uh, I want you to hug one another because that's what NA did to me when I came in here in 1979 I want you to know you never got to go out and use again that's the first thing you never got to go back there it's over your choice if you want to surrender it's over but uh, I showed up here because God brought me here I don't talk about my addiction I just talk about the last night the accumulation of a lifelong of addiction is not what got me here it's that last night yeah and and if you can't remember that last night you're doomed to repeat it over and over again I remember that suffrage I remember that hell I remember the desperation yeah, and I remember it like it was today. You know, uh, I remember in 1979, and it was November the 8th. I do celebrate the 16th, but there's a reason I'll get to that. November the 8th, though, was my last night using. I sat there contemplating how to die. And he was ever want to die? Seriously. And you can say, yes, me. All right? You ever want to die? Yeah. You ever get to that point where you're that desperate and don't want to live? Yeah. Yeah. That's where I was at. Okay, I planned my suicide. I planned how to die properly. It's a dilemma if you're caught up and you got to, you know, get caught up, you want to save your ass in the face at the same time. That's where I was at. I'm contemplating what the brothers that I rode with would look at me as because I was a outlaw biker. I heard they outlawed the bikers in this country. I'm thinking, how do you outlaw outlaws? I mean, kind of insane. But I'm thinking about that. Someone says, oh, they outlawed the Hell's Angels. And I'm like, well, they're outlaws. So why do you need outlaw? You know, but I was one of them type of people, okay? Uh, you know, and, and I got to that point in my life that I want to die. I want to commit suicide. How do you do it? Anyone ever try? You failed, you're here. Think about that. I failed, I'm here. I failed at the greatest aspect of my life. I wanted to die and I wanted to die properly. I figured it way I figured my way out that night. I was planning suicide. I thought about it. Anyone ever cut the risk? How'd you do it? This way? You didn't do it this way, did you? If you did it this way, you're dead. And I thought about that. You cut them this way, you sit in the tub, you drink a bottle of wine. And you die. But you know, I could never see myself dead. I could hear my brothers talking about me as being a punk, a pussy, all other types of names. And as a biker, you don't want to be called names. And I remember that well. And then I thought about popping pills. Anyone ever pop pills and try to die? You know, you know who they are. They, they usually got a hole in their neck. Because they usually did a, they cut open to save their lives. I thought about that, and then I'd see myself in a hospital bed, and then my brother's looking at me as this punk, this girl, this loser. And how could this mighty biker come to that point? And then I thought about blowing my head off. You know how you blow your head off? I'll tell you, you get a sawed-off 12-gauge double barrel, you put it underneath your fucking neck, and you pull both barrels. You're dead. You blow your whole top of your head off. But I'd see myself in the hospital again with these guys looking down at me, so I figured it out. I loaded about 10,000 rounds of ammunition on my bike. I, I, I got my machine guns. I got all my weapons, and I was going to go into a bar that the churches wanted to shut down. This is in, in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, 7th and Chew Street. They had a bar called the Friendly Tavern. And that was anything but friendly. You walk in that bar, you go in any time of the night. It was prostitution. You walk in the bathroom. The bathroom was full of blood from the heroin addict shooting up. The gambling. Everything was going on in there. Anything illegal was happening. That was the bar I was going to take out that night. I was going to commit mass murder. And then I'd die in the streets in a gun battle with the police. And I'd have the front page. When I made that decision to die, and I knew how to die, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> 
my last shot of, of, of I don't talk about drugs, but my last shot of my arm when I was not a junkie. That was, I looked down on junkies. Just like society does, they look down on junkies. That wasn't me. I partied hard and I partied every day. I stayed wasted. So it got me to that point I wanted to die. And a woman called me at 2 o'clock in the morning. And she asked me if she could have five minutes of my time. And she challenged me. She said, you're not afraid to die, you're afraid to live. I gave her five minutes, it turned into this day. Going on 42 years later. God intervened in my life. God brought me here. God had her call me. She woke up and she's talking about reading my name in the paper. And I'm thinking, what is she talking about? I'm thinking tomorrow morning I'll have the front page because this guy's dying properly. And she's talking about three months earlier I got picked up for assault and battery attempted murder on a police officer because I let him lay in, a, in an eight-foot uh, hole in the ground full of blood. And she said God woke her up every night for the last three months. And tonight he, she woke, woke her up and said, call him now, he'll be dead if you don't. God led me here. Nothing ever could touch me in my life and shatter my world. God brought me here. I already made my decision. I didn't come here to get clean. I came here to stop the pain. I came here for the years of abuse as a child, being physically abused, being raped as a child. That's where I ended up in my addiction. And I lived my life as a cold-blooded human being that didn't care about another person. God brought me here for a reason. I didn't know why, but he brought me here for a reason, and I remember that well. And as long as I remember that, I'm not doomed to repeat it. I don't ever want to repeat them years. Someone says, oh, I wish I could do it over again. Over again for what? Why do we want to do it over again? Seriously, why would I want to go back to that world ever again? What's going to change about it? Zero. He brought me to Narcotics Anonymous for a reason, and that was to learn how to surrender. I talk about the 12 steps. Nothing else got me clean except the 12 steps. On November the 16th, I made a decision to stay clean. From November the 8th to 16th, I had no intention of staying clean. But she challenged me, and I wanted to see what she was talking about. I was I didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to live. I gave up my strongest point in my life, and that's thinking I can control my own mind. I just shared with some people about this. I think last, was it, what night? About the game. The game we play, right? Two nights ago? About the game. I never gambled. All gamblers lose. I never gambled. I never lost money when I gambled because I didn't gamble. But I'd take your money, I'd take your money, I'd take your money because I never lost. Because it was a mind game. It's a control game. I lost control in 1979. I lost control. What was more important to me was my ability to think and get out of any situation in my life. That was the important part. I lost it, and that's why I wanted to die. I could no longer control my own mind. I didn't want to end up in a mental institution. I didn't want. I couldn't go back to prison again. Three months earlier, I walked in a prison cell and realized I couldn't put up the shield anymore. It was like when the anyone been in jail. Anyone been in, in a prison? What's it like when they shut the door on you? Fucked up. You don't like it, right? Yeah. It sucks. And then you got to get the image up. You got to get the image up. Can you put that image up one more time? And no, I couldn't. I couldn't be the outlaw biker anymore. I couldn't walk on that tier no more. I couldn't survive there anymore. Because I had this emotional self. It's my emotions that brought me here. 
my inability to control my own emotions and break down. And the way I looked at it, I was like my five sisters. I was a punk. I cried like a girl. That can't be me. That's what brought me here. I felt like the five sisters I was raised with. Women like to say, oh, you don't know what a woman feels like? I know what a woman feels like. I never had a brother. I know what a drunken father was who beat me every day, and I cried like my sisters. I mentally broke. That's what got me here. I mentally broke. I'm no longer the outlaw biker. I was a no longer could be the man someone could fear. The only thing that protected me from all that damage was being that person people would fear and stay away from. That's what got me here. So why would I want to return to that? Why would you ever want to return to that world where you're not safe? The drugs control your body. See, I understand drugs control me out there, but once I got here, guess what? Drugs don't control me anymore. The drugs are over. So why do I stay? I don't fit in anywhere else. I fit in Narcotics Anonymous. I met some great men along the road. And why do I say great men? Because they were the men that could touch my spirit. The first person I met was on a telephone called Jimmy Kennett. Jimmy became my grand sponsor. Then I met a named, guy named Joseph Proctor. And I'm giving you their full names. They died. They were dead men. But it wouldn't matter. Because my name is not my amenity. My amenity is what you do with it. If you leave this room and say, Bill Allen said this, you have violated my amenity. But if you leave here and says, I heard this in the meeting, you've not violated anyone's amenity. People get caught up in that word, don't they, Herman? Huh? Mm -hmm. No, you can't violate my amenity if I already did, did you? Huh? No, but the, the truth of the matter was I met men who cared for me. I met people who cared for me the first time in my life. You know, I met my first real NA sponsor was Joseph Proctor. I met him at the Second East Coast Convention for Narcotics Anonymous. We were writing a basic text. Actually, we just wrote this one. That's a bigger version of it. We just wrote this one. One of the most beautiful pieces of literature in the world. If you ever take a chance, read it. Read it. And reread it. And reread it. And reread. I'm reading it since we wrote it in '81. I'm still reading it. You know something? There's words pop off these pages. It's like magic. I don't care. You want to read something for me? Just read something. Read a paragraph, please. Read a paragraph in English. English. Yeah. I'm not good at English. Well, you can speak English. You're speaking it. <laughs> It's written in English, it's not written in Dutch, okay? I don't care, read a paragraph. Can One I paragraph. Can I choose? No, just let the book flow open and read from that point. That's the miracle. Right there, boom. Self-supporting is an important part of our new way of life. For the individual, this is usually uh, <laughs> quite a chance. In our addictions, we were dependent on people, places, and things. We looked to them to support us and to supply the things we found lacking in ourselves. That's great, right there. You can stop if you want. This is weird. <laughs> no, it is not weird. It's, it's, it's talking to you. That's talking to you. We're all interdependent on one another, even here. But yet here we demand to be self-supporting is what it's saying. We demand that from ourselves. We were dependent on others in our addiction, weren't we? Every one of us, we're dependent on somebody to get us through. Whether it's your dealer, whether it's your neighbor. All right? We're dependent. And we couldn't be self-supporting. We didn't have the ability. I needed someone else.
to pick me up emotionally in my addiction. I didn't have that ability to get emotionally stable. The program's given me that right. The program has delivered me from active addiction. It's delivered me, you know, it talks in there, the last to return is emotional stability. It used to say emotional sobriety. We changed it to fit our language, but that was the words of Jimmy Kinnon. The last to return. Well, that's what brought me here. See, the emotional instability brought me here. I couldn't stay that way. I needed emotional stability. I had to learn to be part of something greater than me. And that's what Jimmy taught me. That's what Joseph taught me. I met Joseph. You've got to imagine this. Joseph's on roller skates. He had, he had bows of white hair. He looked like a clown. She likes to hug, right? Come here, please. Here's what Joseph did to me, okay? I'm going to show you what Joseph, come on. Here's what Joseph did to me. She likes to hug, I know it. She gave me a nice hug already. All right? But she didn't hug me like Joseph, okay? But Joseph did, he got a hold of me like this, okay? And Joseph started this on me. And he started this. And he started this. And he got tighter, and he rubbed me. And I was like, holy shit, what the hell? Does this guy want to go to bed with me? <laughs> Seriously. He started rubbing me down like no woman ever did. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's real cool. I'm thinking, this guy wants to go to bed with me. And then he takes this book, and he gives me this book, and he gives me a four-step a four-step inventory guy and tells me where the stuff to die, motherfucker. I'm like, this fucking guy insulted me now. Now, sir, this is how I met my first little NA sponsor. And he's doing this stuff to me. He's doing this stuff to me. And he's rubbing me, and he's rubbing me. And, he's, and I'm like, when's he going to start doing the whispering in my ear? <laughs> All right, when's he going to start running his tongue down my neck? I'm going to kill this motherfucker where my head goes. Okay? This guy got to die today. All right? You go back, okay? Before I, you start getting a little scared. <laughs> you take the book with you. I already gave it to you. Well, you need another one to give a newcomer. <laughs> but Joseph, Joseph Proctor loved me, and I didn't know it was love. And then I went outside. You know what I found? Seven bikers. I'm going to go talk to these seven guys along the wall. They're all bikers, and I'm going to walk over, and I'm going to talk to them how I want to kill this motherfucker. And I'm going to tell them what this man did to me, and you're going to justify and rationalize go kill him, right? No. They said, you got a choice to make. The choice is, you can either do what Joseph said, work the steps to die, motherfucker. All right? Or you can kill him and go to jail. Which one you want? Remember I said I how I felt the last time I went to jail? Visualizing that and going back there? I'm going to go back there. So I went home, and I walk in the meeting. There's three of us, a newcomer, my wife, and me. Well, she wasn't my wife yet. She became my wife shortly after that. Uh, but we're sitting there, and I'm talking about this shit. I'm angry. I'm still angry. I'm blaming. I just well, there was more than that in the room. Then there was a whole lot of people. There was more than this in that room, actually. What was there at the end was us three. Because I slammed the gray book down the table. I slammed the four step guy down the table, and I said, "We're Narcotics Anonymous today. We weren't NA back then. We had the name NA." You read the tradition talked about riding on the NA name? We were an actual AA meeting riding on the NA name because that's all we had, AA literature. We used to change the AA big book and write our drug of choice in there. I don't talk about my drug of choice, but in there, when you read the book, it talks about they're, they're going over a bottle of booze. Okay, Seagram 7s or whatever, or whatever, Canadian whatever, and I put methadrine. I put LSD. I put this. Guess what? It ain't about the drug. It ain't about what we use. It's what it did to us that got us here. Our drugs separate us. The drug of choices separate us from one another. That's what they do. Our war stories. A lot of people like telling war stories. They separate us. My lifestyle would separate you. What you can identify as the emotions. My lifestyle would separate you if I talk about the biker world. 
That would separate you from me, and I would separate from you. But what you identify with is the isolation, the loneliness, the, the, the not wanting to live. We identify with that. We identify when we're welcomed home for the first time here and we feel like we're a part of something greater than us. We identify. So our identification is so important when we walk through the door. Back then we didn't have an identification. We had to find it. We didn't have a language. We had to create it. And we did it through writing a book. These people introduced me to one of the greatest stories that I ever told, and that's the writing of the basic text. They introduced me to something that I could be part of something greater than me. I couldn't read, write, or, or talk when I got here. I stuttered. I, don't, I no longer stutter. I went to seven years of speech class trying to be taught how to speak English right. I, I'm only no English, but yet I'm being taught how to speak it right. I still say certain words wrong and people try to correct me. I look at me, yeah, you're right. I did say it wrong, but I'll never say it right. I know my speech impediment. They tried to force me for seven years, from, from kindergarten through sixth grade, how to speak right. Never worked. In seventh grade, the teacher realized my tongue was too big for my mouth. That I'll never say certain words right, because my tongue gets caught up. And then I stutter out of fear. I was embarrassed. I was a child that was embarrassed as a child. I was embarrassed. I, I didn't know. You know, I never asked a girl out in my life. I don't know that dating game. I don't know it at all. I didn't ask my wife out. She called me up. I don't know how to do that stuff. I learned how to do it later. I showed Herman how to make out in a restaurant, right? In America, I told him. I did. I told him, watch this, Herman. You want a number? I'll get it for you. I was just playing with him, no, okay? I know how to do that today, but I didn't know how, I never did it in my life. But I know how to play the game. All right? You read people, you know what they're seeking. I didn't know how to do that, though. I didn't know how to. I was too scared to ask that girl out to dance. I wasn't afraid I'm going to fall over. Seriously, so I'm the wallflower. You remember, you go to dances as a, as a high school kid? I'm the guy that held the wall up. I'm the guy looking for the toughest guy with the nicest girl, and me and him are going to fight. That I knew how to do. And then I'm going to take his girlfriend from him. See, I knew how to do that shit. I didn't know how to communicate any other way. I was afraid of being embarrassed. What if she says no? I'm rejected. I'm already rejected, though, before I even, even think about that stuff, I already rejected myself. I know what it is to be a rejected human being. I know we don't come in here perfect. I know we're all struggling when we get to Narcotics Anonymous. We all want to fit in, don't we? Every one of us want to fit in. But we don't fit in that real world. We don't fit in world. I didn't fit in anywhere. The only place I fit in was with an outlaw motorcycle club. You know why I fit in there? Well. Because they put me in a position that I only reported to one human being. I had to deal with all the other club shit. I didn't have to deal with that. And I knew what I was good at. I was good at hurting people. So I fit in there well. But what I wasn't good at was letting people know who I truly was. I was not good at letting you know that I hurt. I couldn't tell you I was scared. I couldn't tell you all them years is what made me into that human being. See, I don't, we ever do a four-step? Anyone do a four-step here? I did many of them. Guess what? It ain't about who I harmed. It's about why I harmed them. You know what it's about? It's about a scared little boy. It's about that scared little kid. And I remember this well when I went to kindergarten for the first time. My grandfather drove me there in his taxi cab, and he dropped me off, and his little girl walks down this hill. I had to go up three blocks to get up to the school. And she walks me up the hill holding my hand, and I'm like embarrassed. I'm embarrassed right from the start. I want to go back in that taxi cab. I want to hide. But I had to walk in that school with this little girl leading me into the school. I remember that well. 
I remember being embarrassed. I remember being alone. I remember feeling isolated. And this little girl got to walk me into the school. I didn't know how to talk then. Every time I talked, I stuttered. Out of fear. The fear of growing up. I was a stuttering fool. I didn't want anyone to see me as a fool. So I become who I become because of that. Not because I'm this bad guy out there. I became that guy because I didn't want you to get near me. I didn't want you to know me. I didn't want you to harm me. That's how I become that human being. In my fourth step, I talked about them patterns. I start that in my first step. The way we work the first step, the way I work the fourth step, the first step, is I look for them circumstances. I look what led up to them circumstances. Okay, what were the results of that? They're never good, are they? We're never good. It's always a powerless state I'm in. Right? It's always powerless. I'm always feeling inadequate. Me and Herman just talked about this earlier about, you know, why we struggle with God even. Why do I struggle with God? Because there's always an imperfect human being that I thought should be perfect telling me about God. <laughs> and I'm judging that human being. You know, what's the problem if you're in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a religious condemnation? What's the way they start their prayer? Our Father. Who am I looking at? My Father on earth who's abusing me. My father who wanted to kill me when I was five years old. And my grandmother saying to her, you can't kill Billy because he's not been baptized. So why would I want anything to do with that guy? It's all right to kill me if you baptize me? And that's what I'm thinking about my grandmother. How dare you? As my father, my father's in a drunken rage and he got me in the air and the blood's dripping down my fucking back. And he's screaming how he's going to kill himself and me. See, I remember that as a child. I remember living in fear and wanting to fit in. We're not here to talk about things that are going to separate us. We're here to talk about them feelings, them things, that empathy, that care, that compassion. That's what Jimmy did. Jimmy talked about loving me, caring for me. And then he put in the second step. You ever read the second step? There's two attributes. What are them two attributes that you got to have for that greater power? Martin, you know. Loving and caring. Right? Has to be loving and caring. Can't be human, can it? No. It cannot be human. It has to be a spiritual power greater than all of us. It, it says it has. it's greater than all of us. So it can't be us. It eliminates that human part. I'm not loving and caring all the time. I can get angry. I can get real angry. I just did it last weekend. I'm at a conference. I'm at a literature conference. One of my sponsees is flipping out all day, and I'm watching her, and I'm like trying to calm her down, and finally she gets up and she attacked me. I said, it's over. And she saw the anger in my eye. And then I went up to my room and I prayed for over 20 minutes. And I will come down in a minute, my, my part. My part is I shouldn't have reacted. I'm human, of course, but I shouldn't have reacted. Didn't matter what she did all day long. What mattered was my part. And I promptly admitted my wrong. I couldn't ever do that before. I could never admit that I'm wrong because I was trying to be perfect like that pastor sitting up in the pulpit. I was trying to be perfect like him. It's hard to be perfect. You know that? It's hard to be perfect. When I come in here, I want to work a perfect program. I can't work a perfect program. There's no perfect program here. There's no one that can work the program the same way. We can duplicate stuff. We can work our best. we got to go through it. We're each individuals. We all have differences. We all have similarities. Our differences would separate us, right? I hate that part in the book where people talk about our diversities, our strength. I'm going to tell you it's not. Why am I going to tell you that? Our diversity is what kept us out there apart. That's what kept us apart. We didn't fit if you didn't look like me. Right? If you didn't walk in and you were not strapped down in leathers and you didn't have a Harley Davidson, you didn't fit in my world. 
We come in here, it's our similarities. It's that thing that runs between each one of us. Each one of us have it. We have a need to belong. Each one of us have a need to belong. We want to feel part of. We all want to be part of. We don't want to be alone no more. Remember I told someone, Donna, what city are you from? Rotterdam. Rotterdam. I, I mispronounce that a lot, so don't worry, okay? <laughs> no, I do. There was a guy down there, and I met him here a few years ago. Remember him? I told him, never alone, never alone again, and I met him. That was the saying when I came into narcotics and I was never alone, never alone again. And it matters to me. Them old sayings that we said repetitionally every day matters. When you walk in and someone hugs you and welcomes you home, it matters to me. When they say, I love you, it matters. That's what matters when you walk through that door. You know, it mattered to me when I walked here today and everyone started hugging me and wanted to thanking me for being here. I felt a spiritual enlightenment walking through that between everyone. I hugged the per everyone that hugged me, I hugged them, and I felt enlightenment. I could see the spirit in Martin's face in his eyes today, like I've never seen. I know Martin for what? Five years. Six years? When, you had, when you had the first one? Five years ago. Okay, five years ago. Well, I've been, yeah, I, I, I've been a, this is going to be my fifth out of six years years because they locked me out last year. All right? They wouldn't let me over. <coughs> they shut us all down. So, But the great part about it is I saw a spirit in his eyes. I saw a smile on his face. And I let him know that. And we hugged. It's like we're long lost. And I told him about the totem pole he made at my house. And my son still has that totem pole at the end of our yard in the garden stands there. He oiled it. You know, but uh, that meant something to my son that he made a totem pole with a freaking chainsaw for him. They went and got the log, brought it to my, back to my house, a piece of oak, and he made that totem pole. That mattered. So I wanted to let him know that totem pole is still there. And my son has put it up at the end of the garden. When you walk, come in our alleyway, the first thing you see when you come to the end is that totem pole. Someone cared enough for my son to make him that. Yeah, you know, when you see something like that, someone's given of themselves. You acknowledge that. You acknowledge each hug that I got today because it was important to me when I walked through the door today. I was hugged. I was cared for. I was welcomed. You know, when a newcomer walks in, they should feel that love, that care, that compassion. Put your arms down, please. No, seriously, you too. You're holding yourself in. Be free. I used to do that all the time. <coughs> What's going to leave? What's going to leave? I don't know. It's, and something might break if I open them up. When you open up, you're free. You open up and you're free. we got to learn to be free here. we got to express to one another. You know, we're each other's eyes and ears here. If you see a brother or sister going the wrong direction, talk to them and care for them and let them know, hey, I've been there. I've been there. You're not alone no more. Let them know you care about them. Love them back to life. That's what they did for me. And that's why I have you hug. That's why I pray. I'm praying for God to use me as a vessel of his knowledge, what he once said. I don't know what I'm saying when I get up here. I don't know where, I know I'm starting in 1979, so I know. I don't know where I'm going to go with it. Anything that I say is because God puts that in me today. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. You know, but we all know what we can talk about as recovery if we're here long enough. We should have enough recovery to share that with somebody, shouldn't we? You know, from 1979 to 19, I mean to 2021, there better be something inside there by now. <laughs> I better have practice something. You know, the greatest aspect is them steps. I talked about the first step a little bit. I only touched on it. Because there's a process of working these steps. It's, it's a surrendering thing. I talked with Herman a little bit about the second step today, that greater power. And I don't give a damn what you call it. You call it the hubba dubba bubba for all I care. <laughs> Seriously, it shouldn't matter. As long as it's spiritual, it's not me. And it's not another human being in this room. Don't ever put one of us on a pedestal. It's a, long, it's, a, it's a lonely place to be on a pedestal, you know that? 
See, I know that. I did that for a while. In the late 80s, they put me on the speaker circuit. Then I'd be getting in front of, I think the most I ever spoke in front of was almost 20,000 people. You know what that's like when you can control 20,000 people? Seriously. And, and you know the person in the back, and you know how frizzy they get, and, and you call them out and you ask them, yeah, so you're, you're back there laughing. Would you please come up here and share it with us? We all want to laugh, don't we? And the person stops. They don't come up. And then you go back to right where you were at. You got control of a crowd, and I realized that. This is not good for me. I'm on a pedestal. No one can touch me. They all want to hug me. They all want my number, and I've not got 100 sponsees, and I can't sponsor any one of them. I had that at one time. Your phone's ringing off the hook, and you're like, okay, all right, you do this. Send me your report, okay? I'll meet you, in, in San, I'll meet you down in uh, Key West, Florida, in the jacuzzi. We'll, we'll, we'll do your fourth step. And I was doing stuff like that. Guess what? I didn't know one of them. There were too many of them. God said, never say no. However, he's not going to give you more than you can use. And people say, how many you sponsor? I said, whatever God has working with me. So simple. They're not working with me. I don't sponsor them. I don't allow people to say, I'll walk some, oh, this is my sponsor. I, who are you? I never met you. Well, you remember when, when I met you at that convention? You didn't call me since. So am I sponsoring you? No. Are we spending some intimate time in the steps together? If we're not, I don't sponsor you. We got to talk about steps. I tell each one of my sponsees I want a call every day. I mean, really, I want repetition. Repetition is what keeps us here. And anyone I sponsor, they know. They say, oh, we, we don't got long distance, get Skype. The phone works perfect, okay? Very cheap. All right. I, I don't have WhatsApp, but some of them got WhatsApp, okay? I get a call from Iran. I don't sponsor, but he calls me about four or five times a week. He uses WhatsApp. So they got these cheap ways of calling people today in the world. You know, when I got clean, we didn't have the brick even then, okay? We call this the brick, okay? You ever see a, a flip phone? Now you've seen it if you haven't seen one. Okay? I don't like them, them, uh, them other phones. But you know what happens, though? These phones are meant to be used. Back when I got clean, you had a big round phone on the wall. You had to dial it. Uh, I used to get one of them. I'd get a 35-foot cable so I could walk around the house. <laughs> I said, my wife, what are you doing? I says, she said, you never sit down. You're always up and moving. And I, I started in the kitchen and end up in the front room. Sometimes I go out the door, okay? Be on the side of the house, go down the stairwell that morning. I'd be down there talking, okay? You know, and uh, then they got this idea, they got you them uh, cordless telephones. So then I could walk down to the alleyway with that. But I used to have a phone in the basement. I'd have one up in the kitchen. I'd have one in the bedroom. I had phones everywhere. So I was always, when the phone rang, I could pick it up. And I could talk to people. Me and Grateful Dave one time, uh, you'll get to know him too one day, but not personally. You'll never know him personally, but you'll get to know about him. My best friend in recovery at one time. Dad of the AIDS virus in 1980, I mean 1992. We ran a $2,000 a month phone bill up a couple of times in my house. My wife used to say, how are you going to pay for it? We don't know. God will take care of it. I mean, seriously, I depend on the phone. I, I talk to people constantly. And, and, you know, it's just like this phone is always ringing. My wife said, turn that ringer off. She said, you got the most obnoxious ringer in the world, but I got one I can hear. All right? And sometimes I just, I'm on the phone, I flip, 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 and I went through 10 different people. She said, how come you're talking to that person? It's not how many, it's not that I talked to that person. That's who I started with. The phone kept ringing. I tell people, call me 3 in the morning. I'll pick up the phone. The phone's right inside my bed. Phones are important. It's a great tool. Anyone ever hear about the five essential tools? It's an IP that we wrote. By addicts for addicts. It's how Joseph Proctor sponsored me. Prayer, reading, writing. 
Hmm? Phone calls? Hmm? Meetings? Repetition. He talked about repetition to me. Joseph talked to me about repetition. You know, Joseph would tell me, though, I live, uh, I live in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He'd tell me, we're going to do your fourth step, but it's going to be in Santa Monica, California, underneath the pair. So I get out to, I get out to Santa Monica, and, and then I said, now, why are we doing it here, Joseph? I could have flew to Memphis and met you where you lived. Why are we 3,000 miles away and you're 1,500 miles away from your house? He wanted me to watch the sun set over the Pacific as I finished up my fourth step on him. He said, you see, the, you see the sun rise over the Atlantic a lot, don't you? It's easy to get to Jersey Shore, but get to, get to Santa Monica it takes an effort. He wanted the effort put into it. When he had me go to Miami Beach, Florida in, in, in 81, when we writing the basic text, I, I stood in the, in the Mar- it was 11th World Convention, I'm sitting in the Marco Polo Hotel that morning with everyone that's writing literature, Everyone's together. It's like a family week weekend together. And I look out over over the Atlantic, down there, and there's porpoises, and we're all just watching the porpoises. And it was a moment of silence, a moment of of God's intervention in our lives and showing us some beauty in life. And we were together. The spirit flowed. This thing's about spirituality. I met spirituality in these moments. When you put the effort into getting somewhere and you don't make excuses, it takes a little effort to dry up and run down, right? Huh? It took a little effort to get here, Peter, right? Then you got to drive home tonight, right? Yes. So you got, what, a, a four-hour trip and all? Yeah. And plus a meeting and plus whatever you do after the meeting, right? What a nice company. Right. But it takes time, okay, to do these things. That's what Joseph said. Get out of your little community. You only become as sick as your community. Travel. Make the effort. Joseph taught me them things. He taught me about recovery. He taught me about getting to know each another, one another. You don't know a person until you know they're in your home and sitting in your living room. You know that. You don't know them when you, until you're staying in a hotel room with them and you don't know the person, but you stay with them. You learn about them. You don't know about the man until you're sitting on the, on the beach with them and you're doing your step work with them. You really don't know that person. I knew that person's the guy that insulted me and thought he was trying to take me to bed. See? That's what I thought. But once I got to know the man, I found out he was a caring, loving, compassionate human being. I could call him up a thousand miles away and he'd rip me open. He'd rip out my guts and make me look at myself and then he'd stitch me back up and hug me the same way on the phone. I could feel that same hug come back when I met him. I could feel that love and compassion from his voice. I could feel him rubbing me down. And I knew he cared. I found people who cared about me so I could care about myself. And I could make this thing work. That's what this program's about, care. Loving one another better. That's what we used to talk about, learn to love one. It's in the book somewhere. I don't know where, but it's in there. Learn to love one another better. See, I know things that are in the book. I just don't know where they're at. I'm not a walking book. So I got to keep reading it. I'm repetition. Everything that I go over is repetition. Why they'll say, I said, you'll find out later. Right, Helmer? You'll find out later. You'll find out later. I can't explain it. I just know it works. If we're willing to apply ourselves, the greatest thing in the world can happen. I count it. There's 28 people here. How many are we going to have down at the EFC from this room? We all can be there. You know that? Every one of us can be there. You can be there. You can spend the, you can be down there helping make me breakfast again. All right? This guy's a great, he's a great cook. Did you know that? He made me personal breakfast, right? He treated me like I was a king when I met him. It's a blessing. He made me feel great when he cooked for me. He took time out to cook personally for me. You know what that made me feel like? Made me feel like I was walking on the golden road. He gave me that. He gave me part of him. That's important. But I put a challenge that every one of you should be there where I'm going to be. 
My friend Mickey's coming. He's going to be celebrating, what, 37 years with us this weekend? Today, I know, but he's going to celebrate it with us this weekend. All right? He's flying in tomorrow morning. We're going to get him at the airport, Ramon and me. You know, had to make sure he could get here because he was afraid of getting stopped at the airport. Well, I've already been through, so I know we can get through. All right? But uh, we've been locked up too long, folks. First in our addiction, then the government locked us up for how long? I'm not here to talk about that, but we all know what it feels in isolation and recovery when that happened. They closed our meetings down. You couldn't go to a physical meeting, folks. You know what that feels like to an addict after I, I've been to so many meetings and all of a sudden you can't go? I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? You know, I wasn't concerned about me. I knew I'd get through. You know, I'm concerned about that brand newcomer out in the street. Who's going to talk to him? Who's going to get him here? How, what's our response? How are we going to reach him? More important to me is how are we reaching the newcomer? How are we getting the message out there if we're all locked in Zoom rooms? How are we getting newcomers in there? They're suffering out there. You know, the addict don't stop using because someone says, oh, you got a pandemic. They didn't stop being in the streets, did they? They didn't stop getting to their dealer. They didn't isolate in their drug world. How are we going to reach them? That was my concern. How many of us are going to die even in the program that are used that need that one-on-one touch? You don't get one-on-one touch on a, on a Zoom call, folks. <laughs> so they had me speaking around the world. I'm speaking in New Zealand. I'm speaking in, in Brazil. I'm speaking in Portugal. You know, I'm speaking everywhere. I'm doing what I do best, history days. They had me doing history stuff, a lot of that stuff out there. I could speak about history. And people are calling me and they're like, but guess what? The love and the compassion I needed wasn't there, so we found a way out. Last July, we opened the meeting up outside. We said we had enough. No one's locking us down from being together. And guess what? We provided masks. We provided hand sanitation if you wanted it. We'd end up with 40 people at the meeting outside sitting around in lawn chairs. No one had a mask on. All right? And everyone hugged. And we loved one another back to life. And then we talked about how we're going to reach the newcomer. How are we going to get the message out there that you're never alone again? If they're alone out there, isolated, how are we going to reach them? Some things that you do real great over here, you do a lot of good public information work, folks. You need to do more of it. You need to reach the addict, get to work together. I like that idea of that bike. I think the bike, anyone <coughs> that didn't get to see the bike come up in uh, Swalla, or how do you pronounce that town? It don't matter about Daughter keeps saying you say it wrong, you're wrong, Dad. I said, I'll never learn to talk right. I don't even, you know, I, I finally gave him a Z on the back end of his name. I used to call him Herman. Because every time it comes up when you do, uh, what do you do that? They're uh, corrected, the, the corrected, his, his name is spelled wrong. You got corrected, it says Herman. He wants Herman. So I had, and someone else wants her K back and Eric, and I told him he can't have it yet. <laughs> All right. But I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, it really don't matter. I said, just don't call me late to dinner, folks. All right? I care less what you call me. But the real simple thing is that you do a great job, and if you come down there, the bike's going to be there this weekend. You can see the bike in person. <laughs> I can't wait to see the bike in person. I only see pictures of it. I see it moving around. I think you need a fleet of them over here. Seriously, every group should have a couple bikes out there with the PI thing on it. You know, you could reach more addicts with that bike. In this country, I mean, I see more bicycles than anywhere in the world right here. I was so impressed when I got here the first time in 1980, I mean in 2016, right? I was so impressed. I'm like, what the hell are all these bikes doing? You got them racked up everywhere. So you put these bikes out there all over the place with Narcotics Anonymous and a phone number and a web page. We're here to help. You got a drug problem, we're here. I mean, what, a, what an ambitious ideal that they come up with to do that. Seriously. 
And then they say, everyone got two bikes, so donate one. Be self-supporting, as she was saying. Give one of your bikes over. All right? You imagine how many bikes you could have out there? And you don't got to pay for a billboard. Your bicycle to your billboard. And you know, wherever you're putting bikes, you know there's addicts. Either they want to steal them, right? So they can sell them so they can get a, <laughs> some drugs. So they got to see the poster. You know what that is? Repetition. How many times you see a poster? I remember some guy walking in 10 years later, and they had my phone number on it because the PI poster used to have my phone number. He took one. 10 years later, he called my phone up. I said, where'd you get my number at? Oh, I got a poster. So I told him, I'll come get you. We'll go to a meeting. And he showed me the old poster with my home phone number on it. I don't believe in changing my number because that could happen. That could happen. That's why I got so upset when my, my daughter changed all her phone numbers. I know my old number on my cell phone was 3558, and that was 3305 when she did that to us. Her phone came to me. My phone went, number went to my son, and she got a new number. And I look, what do you do that for? My number's everywhere. You know, because it's important that people have your number. They got a number to call or someone to pick up the other end of the line and say, what can we do to help? That's all we're concerned about. What can we do to help you? We're here to help. How can we help you? And get them, you know, 12-step work doesn't happen out there. We say we're doing 12-step work. It don't happen. You know what happens when I get that newcomer in this room? Let that newcomer be loved back to life and let you guys do the 12-step work. My job is just to get them there. That's all it is. Our job is to get people here and allow the group to do its work. Allow that person to feel like you did when you walked in here. And why you stayed. Give them, make the newcomer feel they're the most important person in the world. Because they are. Our lifelong line depends on you coming in that door and staying clean. <clears throat> okay? My life depends on you, okay? And it does. If I don't have a newcomer to work with, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. I need people to work with. If I don't have that, I'm alone again. Left in your own mind, what happens? It's in the book that tells you this stuff. I know it's there. It's in there, but left with our own mind long enough, what's going to happen? We're going to talk our way back out the door, aren't we? We're going to leave here, if you leave me in this mind too long. When I'm in my own mind, I'm behind enemy's line. That's what the book actually says, okay? I don't know where it's at. You can find it for me, but I don't know where it's But I know it's there because I've heard it. So many repetitious times. When I'm in my own mind, I'm behind enemy lines. I can't stay there. I need to call up. I need to tattletale on myself. When I feel something, <clears throat> I need to call up my sponsor and let him know I feel this way. I feel self-destructive today. I call my sponsor. I don't wait, though. If I'm having a great day, I'll call my sponsor. You know why? Because I've been there long enough, I'm going to wreck the great day. <laughs> Anybody ever do that? Wreck that great day? Wake up great, everything's perfect, and all of a sudden I'm like, what happened? Because I stayed up here too long. I start thinking, and when I'm thinking, I'm in trouble. You know, that's what Joseph said, when you think, call, so I called a lot. And then I met him after he wasn't sponsoring me for years, and I finally, I called him up one day, and he picked the phone up, and I'm like, Joseph, they want you to come to Connecticut do a history. He really, he said, you're the most obnoxious motherfucker in the world, Bill. I said, why, Joseph? He said, you're the only guy that took it literally, called me Dale, and you're still calling me. He said, I haven't sponsored you for years, but you're still calling. I said, how would you know? He said, I got one of them answer machines yet. We all used to have answer machines. In our he said, every day I hear your voice. I said, well, what made you pick it up today? He said, because I think there was a greater power telling me Pick it up today. And he come up to he come up to Connecticut to a history conference, and it was Jim Miller who passed, and me, and him sitting side by side. And we looked at one another. We all cleaned up the same year, 1979. They cleaned up earlier than me. They cleaned up in in um, in May. I didn't clean up to November. But we're sitting there, and we realized we were all part of writing this here book. We're all part of the basic text. We, and we're an example. 
of that book. One of the first examples of the basic tax and narcotics analysis in the book works. It works. And you have the ability to participate. No participation literature writing yet today. You have the, the ability to work in translations today and put that book in your own language, which you are doing over here. You've got the next project. It's a great book. You can translate that. You already got a book completed. You can start translating it. And you can put it, you can make sure the translations are right. You can make sure they're right. Okay? And you can work together and bring unity together. <coughs> this is about unity together. Spirit's touch. What happened with Joseph that day is spirit touched me. You know, he became my sponsor again and he, and he died. One thing I asked every one of my new sponsors, are you prepared to die? They look at me and I said, well, they all died already. Every one of my sponsors died, so you got to be. If you're not, if he can't say yes, he's not going to be my sponsor. You know why? If you're not prepared for death at that time in recovery, you haven't begun recovery. You not have accepted your own mortality. You have not accepted that this, this body is just a body and my spirit's going to live on after I leave here. I'm prepared for death today. But I sure don't want to die today. Not like 1979, I was prepared for death and wanted to die. Today I don't want to die, I want to live. I want to be the first addict ever to celebrate 100 years clean. So i got to be around a lot longer, okay? So I think I might outlive a lot of you young people yet. All right? I've got a long time to live yet. All right? I'm only going on 42, so and i got to make 100. So i got almost... Uh, what, 68 more years to go? Huh? I got a long time to live yet, folks. You know, you think about that. I am not done with this recovery program yet. I don't plan to. The God makes that decision to take me home. I got too much to do. I got too many loved ones that care for me. I got my little <coughs> grandson who was just over here, little Gabriel. And if you, ever knew, if you ever met my grandson, you know the kid has fought for almost six years to save his little life. He was born, he, was born, he died at a week old. They brought him back to life. He's had heart conditions. He's been in and out of children's hospitals. My little granddaughter, nine years old, her first three years, she was critical. I learned something about life through them. I won't be around for them for as long as I can be here. And hopefully one day they'll put me in the box and not me having to put them in the box. Because that would break my heart. That would break my heart. Every parent, when, when their child ODs, it breaks their heart. You know that? It breaks their heart. When they put their child in, in, the, in the grave. I've been to enough funerals of addicts that have died. Addicts that have chose addiction. Our job <coughs> is to make sure there's less and less in them that it's happening to. Our job is to find them and get them in here and help them. We don't need rehabs and all that other crap. We need to reach them. We need to get out in the streets. We need to find them. We need to bring them home. I get, I get broken hearted every time I got to go to a funeral of an addict that's relapsed. Or a mother watching her bury her son, her daughter. It breaks my heart. And what can you say? Well, not much you can say. The only thing you can do is comfort them and let them know you don't know the answer, but we'll try to reach some other child. Can't do anything for that person at that moment. But our responsibility, as Jimmy Kennan said, and no one else can do it. It's in the book again. It's in his message, actually, okay? You hear what Jimmy said in that, on that their 20th birthday? I think you have it here somewhere, don't you? But Jimmy, or you used to anyway. Jimmy's message is, we're the only ones who can carry this message. You know that? Nobody else can do it for us. It's only us. We are responsible. Each one of you are responsible tonight. I'm going to let you know what Jimmy told me. We are responsible to carry this message. Nobody else. No one else can do it. No one else is going to identify with them. No one's going to know about that loneliness and isolation they're living in. Nobody else. It's our responsibility. We've been given a great responsibility as to carry what we've been given freely here to help another human being. And that's what Jimmy talks about, helping another human being find what we've been given. 
making them feel part of something greater than us. I want to thank you for allowing me to share and participate in your life tonight. I love you guys. Seriously, if no one told you that today, I'm letting you know that I love you <coughs> and I care about you. And we need each one of you, and I want to see each one of you at the EFC. I'll spend time. I'll stay up the whole weekend for you, okay? <laughs> you want to roam around 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, I'll sit in the chair and wait for you, okay? All right? Guarantee it. I don't like sleeping at them things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.